the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to this Monday before Thanksgiving edition of The Dan Proft Show. Hope everybody has a lovely holiday and uh, you're not uh, visited by any of the commissars uh, counting how many people you have in your home or how far apart you are or how many people are in sleeping rooms or how many kids are home from college or how many households are represented in your household or all the other strictures that we're seeing advanced by these lockdown and bus politicians. Absurd. But we begin the show, this installment, by talking about the Trump legal team and the pending legal challenges the campaign is still prosecuting because of the events of the last 72 hours, most notably culminating last night with the rather remarkable statement from Rudy Giuliani and Jenna Ellis, two formal members of the Trump legal team. The statement, quote, Sidney Powell is practicing law on her own. She is not a member of the Trump legal team. She is also not a lawyer for the president in his personal capacity, unquote. So this, of course, initially reported as the Trump legal team disavowing Sidney Powell. Is that what happened? Well, that would be seemingly a fair interpretation at first blush, considering her high profile on Thursday at that Trump legal team press briefing, where she uh, had as much time at the podium as did Rudy Giuliani laying out uh, her particular area of focus when it comes to allegations of voter fraud. And this, of course, is the electronic space, where Giuliani was more on the nuts and bolts of... uh, absentee ballots and signatures and deadlines and the curing of this and the recount of that, sort of the customary topic areas. Uh, the question is, does Sidney Powell actually have a Kraken to release or is she just going to continue describing that Kraken as she did on Thursday and into Friday and the weekend on various news programs in which she appeared? Is this, a re- is this really a disavowal? Well, after that came out and Twitter lit up, that statement, uh, she, uh, Sidney Powell, responded positively. I understand today's press release. I will continue to represent we, the people who had their votes for Trump and other Republicans stolen by massive fraud through Dominion and Smartmatic, and we will be filing suit soon. The chips will fall where they may, and we will defend the foundations of this great republic. Hashtag cracking on steroids. Um, okay. Michael Flynn Jr., and of course, Sidney Powell represents Jr.'s dad, General Flynn, said that um, that Sidney Powell is now free to focus and not be tied to having to vet everything through the campaign. Hmm. Well, that's that's one interpretation. I I just wonder if, and and, and maybe that's directly from Sidney Powell's mouth, but I, I just wonder if everybody was singing from the same hymnal 
why that wasn't included in the campaign legal team statement to give some context. This is not, you know, you don't have to, not proving that this is not a disavowal, but suggesting that what you're doing when making the statement so for public consumption that Sidney Powell is not part of the legal team. She's pro- pursuing law on her own. Hmm. I, I wonder, actually, if some of the things that she had to say over the weekend during some of those interviews I mentioned actually was the reason for the statement and for the statement to be uh, sort of open to interpretation, shall we say. Sidney Powell, first of all, with uh, Eric Bowling, sort of uh, on his program, restating how big she thinks this is, um, the uh, electronic voter fraud committed by Dominion and or Smartmatic. Exactly. They can watch the voting real time. They run a computer algorithm on it as needed to either flip votes, take votes out, or alter the votes to make a candidate win. So that's different. Now, now, now you're, this is even different. I, and I just really want to be very, very careful here and be very meticulous about this. One, it's one thing to be able to watch it and decide how much more input you need to change to change the number. But now you're saying there's an actual way to change the, the, the total, the vote tallies within the system? That's exactly right. That's a very, very big claim there. I mean, that that would be voter fraud uh, defined right, right, right there. Where, what's the next step? It's it's massive criminal voter fraud writ large across at least 29 states. It could have been happening anytime a voting machine was connected to the internet, and we have evidence that many were. It was obviously happening. Uh, it's obvious from the algorithm and the statistics that our experts are tracking out for batches of votes and when the curves changed. And it's it's going to blow the mind of everyone in this country when we get it all together and, and can explain it with the affidavits and the experts that have come forward. All right. Well, if it uh, you know rises to the level of what she's describing, it probably will blow most of the minds of the American people, most of the minds of most of the American people. But uh, some of the things she said, very much in dispute by Dominion, which has uh, retained a longtime GOP political flack, now turned PR flack for hire, named Michael Steele, not the former RNC chairman, but this is somebody who worked for Paul Ryan and uh, John, B- John Boehner, Jeb Bush. We'll, we'll get to what he had to say in an interview on Fox in a second, disputing some of what she's claiming about the voting systems. But just more on the expanse of this. You just heard her say 29 states, essentially the states where Dominion is operating, I presume. She went on on Newsmax to talk about 29 states, these principles, thousands of people. We've got tons of evidence. I just it's so much it's hard to pull it all together have, have i mean how big of a you know if, if if this happened how big of a conspiracy how many people would have had to have been in on something like this oh gosh uh probably uh thousands including the people running the machines at each of the poll polling centers we know for example that one of the higher ups of dominion went to detroit the night of the election to to handle things himself And we also have evidence that there were any number of VPN lines open to the Internet for foreign actors to be meddling in it. All right. So 29 states, thousands of people. Sidney Powell has previously advanced a theory about the vote stoppage, the count stoppage, I should say. 
the count stoppage, machines turned off. And she addressed that again in that Newsmax interview. Our witness from Venezuela who saw it all created and how it worked said that he knew as soon as the machines were turned off in those key straits, it was because we, the people, in voting Trump, in voting for Trump in a landslide election, had essentially broken the algorithm that had been pre-programmed into the machine. So they had to stop counting in those states and areas and backfill the vote with fraudulent mail-in ballots or whatever means they used to do it, whether they just injected numbers or trashed uh, votes for Trump otherwise and changed the numbers. I don't know exactly how they did it right now in each spot, but that's essentially the way it worked. Well, I don't know how they did it right now. See, that's a problem. She's saying mountains of evidence, just the, the deal is just pulling it all together. Um, she's got a theory about uh, count stoppage and what they were doing and then how they did it, but she doesn't know how they did it. Well, uh, if she wants to turn these claims into complaints in a court of law, she's going to have to have more than just a theory based on her intuition of how this all went down. And it is worth noting that all of the complaints the Trump campaign team has filed so far, none of them include the allegations that Sidney Powell is making in the public sphere. Something else that uh, she did in that same Newsmax interview was make a really a, a incredible claim against Georgia Governor Brian Kemp. I mean, Brian Kemp, she accused him of felonious behavior. Yeah, that's a total farce. Uh, Georgia's probably going to be the first state I'm going to blow up and uh, Mr. Kemp and the Secretary of State need to go with it because they're in on the Dominion scam with their last-minute purchase or award of a contract to Dominion of $100 million. The State Bureau of Investigation for Georgia ought to be looking into the financial benefits received by Mr. Kemp and and uh, the Secretary of State. You know, I, I, look, Accusing uh, an incumbent governor of uh, taking bribes is pretty serious, and to do so in a public arena without um, any evidence to back it up yeah, is just a suggestion somebody should be looking at this. I would be looking at this if I was a prosecutor or a law enforcement official with that authority. Um, that is not what a federal former federal prosecutor does. That's not what a responsible attorney does. And I just wonder, we, we've seen many serious people become quite unserious during the Trump years, sufferers of so-called Trump derangement syndrome. I wonder if Sidney Powell is not becoming a negative composite of the TDS sufferer because publicly accusing Brian Kemp of being bribed by Dominion sans evidence is just beyond reckless. We're going to pick it up on the other side of this break uh, and uh, fold in Michael Steele representing Dominion Voting Systems responding to some of what Sidney Powell has asserted and then broaden out to the rest of the uh, election challenges being pursued by the Trump campaign right after this. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show.
Welcome back to the show. We were talking about uh, Sidney Powell and some of the comments that she made over the weekend that perhaps prompted the statement by the Trump legal team, Giuliani and Ellis, stating that uh, she is not a formal part of the legal team, even though she was presented as a formal part of the legal team at that press conference on Thursday. A curious turn of events. This is not to say that everything Sidney Powell says is wrong or even that anything she says is wrong. On the, uh, the digital and electronic fraud allegations, she is making big claims, and it requires a lot of evidence to be pulled together, at least enough that would survive a motion to dismiss in a court of law, I would think, sort of a threshold test of the quality of the evidence. Uh, secondly, though, the claim she's making about Georgia, set, setting aside the claim of Brian Kemp have, taking bribes from Dominion, which is just stunningly reckless, uh, she's not the only one about making claims about Georgia and forthcoming filings in Georgia. Jordan Seculo, the son of Jay Seculo, part of Trump's uh, impeachment defense team, you'll remember, um, he said the same thing. He said, we've got lawsuits likely to be filed in Georgia either Monday or Tuesday. I can't get into the details, but they will be shocking. What's coming in Georgia will be shocking when we file this in federal court Monday or Tuesday. It's nothing that we've talked about before. It's not what you heard at the press conference on Thursday either. This is something completely separate. So I don't know if that will be a new charge that is of the more pedestrian variety with respect to traditional, if you will, voter fraud, or this will be something along the lines of what Sidney Powell was referencing in her remarks during interviews over the weekend. Well, one thing, before we get to Michael Steele, the representative of Dominion Voting Systems, I thought it was interesting what Kaylee McEnany had to say. She went on Fox and Friends over the weekend with Pete Hegseth, and she was asked about the campaign strategy, the campaign's legal strategy, and so where their focus is. Is their focus on things like collecting past election day and absentee ballot signature verification and those sorts of things, or is their focus on essentially the area that Sidney Powell is trotting? Yeah, and we know that Dominion uh, in that one county, that 7,000 votes were changed, um, and we're looking into that. So certainly looking at the evidence um, there, but uh, the equal protection claim is the really strong one and a constitutional one, and I think the winning one at this moment. So translation, you know, we're open to anything, but where we think our bread is buttered on the constitutional issues that are raised most notably in Pennsylvania, equal protection claims because uh, because of the curing of ballots in some counties versus others, as well as the receipt of absentee ballots, mail-in ballots, for 72 hours past the closing of the polls on Election Day per judicial edict in, in contravention of uh, statutory election law in Pennsylvania. So it's interesting that Kayleigh McEnany her focus is not where Sidney Powell is focused. Okay. So Michael Steele, as I said, this is a GOP operative. Now he's a PR flag, so you got to keep that in mind. He's representing a client the same way Sidney Powell is representing a client. Well, we thought she was, at least until last night. I guess her client is the American people, she would say. Nonetheless, here's Michael Steele's description of Dominion voting systems and whether or not it's even possible to switch votes, as Sidney Powell alleges. It is not physically possible for our machines to switch votes from one candidate to the other. Let's be very clear. Our election system is run by local elected officials and nonpartisan poll watchers. We simply provide a tool to count the ballots and pr to print and count ballots. There is no way such a massive fraud could have taken place, and there are no connections between our company and Venezuela, Germany, Barcelona, Kathmandu, whatever the latest conspiracy theory is. Well, there's a couple of things there. One is nonpartisan poll watchers don't administer the elections. Uh, partisan election judges do in most jurisdictions. So that's number one. And partisan election officials who uh, hold the public offices 
that uh, oversee the administration of the election. So, you know, giving this nonpartisan, bipartisan, and he uses those terms interchangeably, and they're not interchangeable. A little loosey-goosey with the language. So, as I said, I'm not taking anything Michael Steele is saying as gospel either. He's also has a very generous characterization of Dominion voting systems, their relationship with Smartmatic, Smartmatic's derivation that does go back to Venezuela. I've talked about that last week. I won't get into that here because I want to get to more of what he said, including what he says the failsafe is for Dominion voting systems, such that you couldn't manipulate the votes and not be not be caught. Well, it's physically impossible. Look, when a voter votes on a Dominion machine, they fill out their ballot on a touchscreen. They're given a printed copy, which they then give to a local election official for safekeeping. If any electronic interference had taken place, the tally reported electronically would not match the printed ballot. Uh, he also went on to say this about uh, Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. We don't have machines in those jurisdictions. In fact, in Pennsylvania, in the 14 counties where Dominion machines were used, the president won 52 percent of the vote. Well, that's interesting, but that's not dispositive of the issue. How does that compare to his number in 2016? In addition to that, if you were going to fraud an election, you would want to present numbers that are sort of ballparked in previous numbers so it's less likely to draw scrutiny, and then maybe you jack up numbers where the spread is usually large. You just have greater volume for a large, for that larger spread, and that's how you make up the difference. I'm not saying that happens. I'm just saying what he said is not the end of the discussion with respect to the possibility that fraud was committed. There are so many statistical anomalies, all of which we've gone over in this show. That's not good enough for me. So so there's questions about Sidney Powell. There's questions about Michael Steele. I, I ask questions. And I don't think the answer is what Chris Christie said in response to the question George Stephanopoulos posed to him on Sunday. Is it finally time for this to end? Yes. And, and here's the reason why. The president has had an opportunity to access the courts. And I said to you, you know, George, starting at 2.30 a.m. on Wednesday morning, if you've got the evidence of fraud presented. And what's happened here is, quite frankly, the conduct of the president's legal team has been a national embarrassment. Sidney Powell accusing Governor Brian Kemp of a crime on television, yet being unwilling to go on TV um, and defend and lay out the evidence that she supposedly has. Um, this is outrageous conduct by any lawyer. And notice, George, they won't do it inside the courtroom. They allege fraud outside the courtroom. But when they go inside the courtroom, they don't plead fraud and they don't argue fraud. This is what I was concerned about at 2.30 in the morning on Wednesday night. Listen, I've been a supporter of the president's. I voted for him twice. But elections have consequences. Well, that's not, that's not necessarily true. Number one, you still have legitimate uh, constitutional cases that are being that are being litigated in the courts of law specifically Pennsylvania so that those are legitimate issues raised Dershowitz said the same over the weekend with Bartiroma number 2 um yes so there is a bit of Adam Schiffism approach behavior if you will being taken by Sidney Powell where she's talking about evidence she's never presenting evidence and that gets old real quick i mean unless you're Adam Schiff but it gets old with people who are actually interested in locating the truth and um wanting contentions substantiated with evidence. But it could also mean, with all due respect to Chris Christie, it could also mean you're still pulling together the evidence. You, your demand for evidence on a two-week timeline is arbitrary. So if she was saying, Powell, look, I, I, we've got this evidence, as she sort of said in the Newsmax interview, we, we've got a lot of evidence. The thing is pulling it all together, but I'm in the process of pulling it all together, and when I do, I'll present, and I understand the timeline I'm on. 
you know, that's a different thing. And, and you know, that really deserves the benefit of the doubt. It's just some of the, the sort of demagogic, over-the-top statements about Brian Kemp and blowing up Georgia that I think are wildly unhelpful to Powell, wildly unhelpful to her case, wildly unhelpful to the president's case, and to keeping the public engaged on this. All right, coming up, we're going to switch gears and talk a happy note, uh, the uh, great increase in pro-life Republican women in the House of Representatives with Marjorie Dannenfelser from Susan B. Anthony West right after this. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. There's another count going on in addition to the most notable ones, the recounts in Wisconsin and Georgia, the election challenges. Uh, There are still races that are yet to be called, but one uh, demographic in particular that we've talked about in this show, I want to talk about more detail now. The number of pro-life women in the House Republican Caucus now standing at 27, and there's another three or four races where a a pro-life female is uh, in the lead pending those outcomes. So it is one of the many anomalies of uh, this election where you have potentially a Democrat elected president of the United States and the party out the, the, and, and the opposite party picks up double digits in terms of House seats. That seems to be what's happening. And it's punctuated by pro-life women, some of whom we've profiled on this show. And uh, this one in particular gets me I want to continue to profile her. You've heard from her, but you're going to hear more from her, I think. Victoria Sparts from the the suburbs of Indianapolis, Ukrainian immigrant. And let's look at any country that has socialism. Every country failed because this system is not sustainable. This system created a lot of destructions and misery. So we have to be smarter than that. You know, we're not going to change. There are only two systems. You have freedom and free enterprise, and you have system where government decides and political elites on top how we're going to live and what we're going to do. And, you know, if you think about it, we all, we're not equal. We all want different things. We want to have equal rights to pursue happiness, but we want all different things. We have different, I, you know, we don't even want to go to travel to the same countries. If the government forces us to be equal, you have to suppress. So every socialistic system, it's about suppression. And we have to value our freedoms because we're the greatest republic that mm-hmm. ever existed. There's a woman who knows of what she speaks uh, for another such woman. We're pleased to be joined by Marjorie Dannenfelser. She's the president of the Susan B. Anthony List, author of Life is Winning, Inside the Fight for Unborn Children and Their Mothers. Marjorie, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I love being on your show. Uh, we love having you. And, um, boy, this, I, you know, it's, uh, it's strange times. At uh, the one hand, we have uh, <laughs> per- arguably the most consequential pro-life president of our lifetimes, who may be on the way out, and, but on the way in is this new cadre of pro-life House Republicans, pro-life female House Republicans. Yeah, it's really amazing. I mean, the, the great blue wave did not occur, but a lot of people didn't, don't really realize some of the beautiful things that happened while we're watching the survey of the results from the presidential. What a lot of women across the country, a new surge of pro-life women coming to Congress are doing, trying to figure out where to live, planning for their swearing in. 
So we did have 11 pro-life women in the House of Representatives. Now we will have 28. And this crop of women is just a beautiful thing to behold. They have all sorts of different backgrounds. Some are from immigrant families. Uh, The first two out of three Korean women are pro-life women um, coming to public office. Um, And it really is a new day. It's turning a corner of women in politics that I think uh, brings us back to the founders of women in politics, the, the suffragists for whom Susan B. Anthony List is named. Yeah, and it's it is the stories are fun um, because of it's the uh, yeah because of the disparate the, the, the disparate uh, experiences of all these women, but uh, coming together among uh, on a number of issues, but the pro life issue being an important one. Uh, it's uh, you know the, Maria Salazar down there in Miami who upset uh, Donna Shalala and you mentioned a member of Cherokee yeah. Nation, first generation Korean Americans, and what unites them is uh, among other things respect for life. Yeah, and then, you know Nancy Mace, the first woman to graduate from the Citadel. Um, I mean the stories are just amazing, and I really think all told, they're going to um, while as diverse as they are, they're united on some fundamental principles. And yes. There were other issues involved in the campaign in this past election, for sure. They are united on this in a way that has really never occurred before. For context, in the early 90s, when Susan B. Anthony List just started, we had one pro-life woman uh, when we began, and she retired basically pretty much after we, um, after we began. So there's a real shift about what it means to be a strong woman, a woman who is um, uh, uh, an authentic woman. I mean, the other side is wanted, uh, has really tried to paint the picture of shame for women who, um, who are fighting for pro-life protections for women and children um, in the law. This, this new crop, too, is joined by a new U.S. senator, Cynthia Loomis, who was in the House many years ago. And now, um, if Kelly Leffler returns, we'll make the seventh pro-life U.S. senator. Uh, and this is joined by governors, so it's, it's really a new day, um, and the left was way ahead in terms of getting their pro-abortion women in office. Now we have beautiful new voices speaking loudly and clearly that uh, we can argue about a lot of things, but this ought to be sacrosanct, the right that's the, the first right from which every other right comes. When we come back, uh, I want to talk a little bit about what those uh, pro-life women in the House in particular can do, do you think, in a minority and potentially in a Biden-Harris administration to play a defense? More with Marjorie Dannenfelser, president of the Susan B. Anthony List, author of Life is Winning, Inside the Fight for Unborn Children and Their Mothers. We'll be right back. Listen, the more you'll know, this is, this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Marjorie Dannenfelser. She's the president of the Susan B. Anthony List, author of Life is Winning, Inside the Fight for Unborn Children and Their Mothers. And uh, we were talking before the break about uh, the new crop of pro-life women in both the House and the Senate, but particularly the House. The numbers are uh, more than doubling over the last cycle into into the new Congress that will be seated in early 2021. But, Marjorie, if, if it is a Biden-Harris administration, I mean, we know how – antagonist to Kamala Harris was to the pro-life community as attorney general and senator from California. Uh, We know where Nancy Pelosi is as the continuing House speaker, even with a much narrower majority. 
what is it that uh, you and and your group and your your conversations with some of these incoming uh, freshmen? What is it that can be done to play defense against uh, what I assume will be an effort to undo a lot of the advances that President Trump made for the right to life? Well, that that's right. Um, and, of course, a lot of this will depend on what happens in Georgia in those Senate races. If we win, which we intend to win, we are going door to door, reaching a million voters in Georgia uh, to try to tip the scales towards uh, the two Republicans, another pro-life great Senator uh, Kelly Leffler, and then also um, David Perdue, if we win those two races and we keep the Senate, then the Senate will be the backstop for every horrible thing that uh, Harris, Biden, Pelosi, Schumer would like to get done. They will go after, without question, the Hyde Amendment in every part of the federal government. In other words, our paying for the funding of the taking of human life and every single uh, place where there is a hedge, that will be taken down right away if we lose the Senate and we um, if we lose the Senate. Now, if we don't lose the Senate, um, we fully intend to keep it. Um, there's a moral of the story of what happened in the House. The moral of the story without the slaughter that, the, that was predicted by the pundits in the polls, um, meaning a great blue wave that kind of washed away all the all the marginal Republicans. Instead, we have a really narrow margin in the House. And the moral of that story is certainly how our women won. They flipped nine pro-abortion seats, those women did. Um, but also there will be, if we uh, if some a, a couple of other good races come in, we'll have a nine-vote margin in the U.S. House. That means we will definitely take back the House next time, given what history shows. So they can't really get away with a lot of really outrageous stuff in the House. They have to play a little bit more moderate than they um, than they think. And and when they don't, um, and we keep the Senate, there will be an, um, a little bit of an education for every single thing that they try to do, forming our um, ability to bring back the House and uh, and hopefully the presidency next time around. So I, you know, this, as you say, is a is, yes. You're right that it's a it's a defense, but it's also a great moment to educate the country about what the other side's about. Uh, agreed. The the other thing too, and I mean, this just underlines exclamation points uh, behind uh, the importance of the Amy Coney Barrett nomination and confirmation, so that whatever uh, gambit might be pursued, if that's the balance of power. You not only have potentially the Senate backstop, you also have a Supreme Court backstop if they uh, try to go beyond where uh, where the law is at this point. That's right. So there was that. You've painted the whole picture, the whole picture, which is some bad news, but a lot of really good news. And thank God for this president and the leader McConnell that they persisted in um, in making sure that Amy Coney Barrett was the nominee and was confirmed before the presidential, um, before the race, before Election Day. Because now we're looking at a, at a situation where the whole nation now is the legislature that will pass legislation and already has, we believe, will come to the court. And we pray there will be an ability for states to finally allow those, state, those laws to go into effect because of the change in the court. So there are several centers of play, but I say, on the whole, we're in a far stronger position than we um, than we thought we were going to be, and um, and especially because of the Supreme Court, there is great hope for a, a big change in abortion law, the first since 1973, 
and that is a point of great celebration and thanksgiving. How, how much of uh, the progress do you attribute to uh, pro-lifers being uh, on advance in the culture as well? And I think, you know, most recently, notably, of uh, Amy Johnson, uh, Abby Johnson's movie Unplanned, as mm-hmm. well as the uh, Gosnell, Gosnell expose movie that was uh, was penned by the screenplay by our friend Andrew Clavin. You know, how is important is that yeah. is to, to stay in that cultural fight to be uh, providing that sort of content through those sort of platforms to inform people? Yeah, those um, media level, um, cultural level communications, along with the increasing um, accuracy of sonograms, people's lives, um, all of these things are really important, going from defense to offense. Also, I believe this um, progress would absolutely not have happened if we had failed to go on offense in politics. And uh, put on the other flip side, we we decided to go on offense and put the life uh, question in the middle of campaigns, make it a central question about a can- candidacies, make sure that every single Republican primary candidate in every major race, including the presidency, was rock solid on this issue. Now you cannot find a pro-choice Republican, a new one, that, it, that can run successfully in this country. We used to look at the election results on election night as they were coming in and make sure that all of our – that the, uh, the balance of power on pro-life was as good as the Republican balance of power. Now it, it, it's, it's the same thing. That's the result of going on offense, putting popular measures at the center of, of elections and campaigns, communicating them boldly like the president and the vice president did, um, and making sure that when they get there, they actually vote on and uh, they vote on these laws and, um, and continue the escalation of the issue so that people know what's, what's at, at hand. Planned Parenthood's collapse um, is, is a miracle of going on offense as well. She is Marjorie Dannenfelser, president of the Susan B. Anthony List and author of Life is Winning, Inside the Fight for Unborn Children and Their Mothers. Marjorie, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. This interview in support of the sanctity of human life has been brought to you by LifeQuotes.com. Show.com. Welcome back to the show. I want to return to uh, the conversation we were having at the outset of the show uh, before our conversation with Marjorie Dannenfelser, because I, I mentioned in passing what Professor Dershowitz, Alan Dershowitz, had to say on Maria Bartiromo's show about the electoral challenges that uh, the Trump campaign is pursuing. And I wanted you to hear what Dershowitz said on her show, on Bartiromo's show, because basically what I've been saying from the outset as well, which is those constitutional issues, the actions taken by the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, for example, issues where the Supreme Court has already uh, contemplated intervention, or in the case of Justice Alito as sort of the oversight justice for for the third district, demanding that Pennsylvania state election authorities segregate those ballots collected after 
polls closed on election day. The constitutional issues there, equal protection issues that are real issues and deserve to be litigated, particularly, and this is one of the imponderables, particularly if litigating them and, and adjudicating the matter of whether or not the Pennsylvania Supreme Court acted unconstitutional or not could potentially change the outcome in Pennsylvania. Here's what uh, Dershowitz said. Their route to the Supreme Court of the United States is rather easy in Pennsylvania because court has already taken that case. They split four to four and then Justice Alito issued an order. The problem in Pennsylvania is they have the law maybe on their side, but they don't seem to have the numbers. The poll watching thing is a retail matter. You're going to have to go through each county, take evidence. Did the poll watchers get excluded? How many votes were impacted? They have the law on their side in some places, not the numbers. They may have arguments, but not the evidence. And they're not going to win on retail challenges here and there. They're only the only okay. chance they have of winning, and it's a, a perfect storm, and it's very unlikely to happen, is if they can show retail, wholesale, constitutional arguments that affect a large number of voters sufficient to be greater than the margin of victory. I don't think they're there. They're not there, but they could be there. And uh, it's a legitimate underlying issue to litigate. And that's the important point. And again, this, this is just bedevils me. Uh, we don't know if it doesn't seem to me we don't know if those ballots that Alita ordered segregated were in fact segregated. And to the extent they were, why don't we have a count on how many ballots there were? We, we don't seem to. So we don't know if if counting, not counting those ballots would have a material impact. Uh, by contrast, we don't know about how many ballots were cured or could have been cured that were not. So the issue of the uh, district court judge saying, well, well, uh, the secretary of state said all counties can cure the ballots. Some chose to cure them and others chose not to. OK, well, it's still an equal protection case. And it would be useful to know how many ballots were actually cured and then how many ballots could have been cured in counties that didn't provide for the curing. You know, those sorts of numbers turn out to be really what, what those numbers are turn out to be really important, because as I've continued to say, the Supreme Court is not interested in. And this is what Dershowitz said yesterday, too, uh, making Pyrrhic decisions, victory to one side or the other, where there is nothing material at stake. So we have to understand the ballots we're talking about, these various bus buckets of ballots, if you will, to understand if a decision one way or the other could flip a state like Pennsylvania and the other states that are being uh, challenged. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. And uh, our next guest we're pleased to have back is Michael Strain. He's the Director of Economic Policy Studies and the Arthur F. Burns Scholar in Political Economy at the American Enterprise Institute. He's uh, written on two topics that we've been discussing quite a bit. One, if Trump is no longer to be the president after January 20th of 2021, what are the legacies, including on the economic front, so-called Trumponomics? Two, uh, what should we do to advance or not advance more COVID relief, more funny money from the federal government, if you will, particularly against the backdrop of the announcement uh, by Secretary Mnuchin that uh, those Fed facilities that were set up, at least nine of the 13, are to be shut down. The money returned after only a fraction of the $450 billion allocated to those facilities 
was actually spent, also a balance in the payroll protection program as well. And yet we should still be arguing for another round of relief to uh, explore both of those topics. Michael Strain, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. With respect to uh, Trumponomics, uh, you wrote uh, a post uh, over at AEI, Trumponomics won't outlive Trump. What did you mean by that? Because uh, just it's interesting. I, I, I before COVID, I remote recall a speech at Catholic University by Marco Rubio about so-called common good capitalism. I've heard uh, arguments uh, of a similar vein from Josh Hawley, and I'm not necessarily a proponent of what either one of them is saying, but but it does seem that they're trying to build upon the populist economics that punctuated the Trump years. Well, I certainly think that's right. You know, I think that you have to separate the kind of reality of the president's economic policies and the way that some senators and and others are attempting to build on on those policies. You know, the president actually did very little by way of of helping workers and and the working class. I mean, if you if you look at um, you know what was promised, there wasn't much uh, uh, progress made on prescription drug prices. There wasn't much progress made on health care security. The president's signature legislative accomplishment was the 2017 tax law, which had pretty minimal direct benefit for the working class. Two major economic policy initiatives uh, had very little at all to help the working class. One was deregulating the economy or slowing the pace of regulation, you know, that'll help workers, but indirectly. And the second was the trade war. And that actually accrued to the detriment of the working class. If anything, it reduced manufacturing employment. It didn't didn't increase it. And so, you know, the question is, when you look at, uh, uh, you know, some of the things that Senator Hawley and Senator Rubio are proposing, you know, are these are these really an extension of the president's policies? Uh, in some cases, in some cases, they are. Senator Hawley and Senator Rubio, I think, are both a little warmer toward industrial policy and and uh, and protectionist measures. But those aren't going to help workers. Those are going to hurt workers. And and beyond that, you know, they're not really talking about extending uh, uh, the president's actual policy uh, uh, initiatives. Well, I mean, it's just a point of order. I mean, on, on drug prices, um, I, I think I have it right. The drug price inflation was 1.5 percent between 2017 and 2019, um, including and, and in part because of a surge in, in competition that introduced uh, and allowed for uh, generic drugs to be approved by F, uh, to be approved by FDA. So, I mean, there, there, there were some things. I'm not an industrial policy guy either, but I mean, just in terms of the, the, the numbers, they do suggest some improvements that were made. And by the way, that was with a president who did try to overturn Obamacare, but fell one McCain vote short, you'll recall. Um, I do. Yeah. I mean, I mean, look, a lot of things affect drug prices. Um, and, uh, you know, the question is, you know, was there an actual policy uh, agenda uh, for for drugs that the president um, advanced that um, that really led to material uh, impact on drug prices? I, I would argue that there that there isn't. Um, and, and yes, the president attempted to uh, uh, repeal and repl- repeal the Affordable Care Act. He failed in that effort, um, and the president never advanced an alternative vision for uh, health care. There, there, you know, we don't know what the Trump health care plan is, even though we were promised that it would that it would be unveiled at any moment. Um, it never was, uh, and so um, uh, you know, I just I just don't really see a record of accomplishment there. 
With, with respect to um, uh, the uh, going forward, um, just one more question on this, then I want to get to COVID relief. Going forward, and, and what are the component parts of the Republican Party's vision for uh, for economic growth? Immigration is another big topic area, and um, and and obviously in the area of COVID right now, it's slowed, but that will at some point hopefully change uh, the design the, the, the the strictures and and so forth, and so sure. um, what what do you think? I mean, it, the, the you have uh, senators like Tom Cotton, who arguably wanted to crack down on legal immigration even more aggressively than Trump did. Um, I did, yeah, and I think and I think uh, I'm sorry, we we did, and and I think that is going to be an area where there is going to be a lasting impact. Um, the Republican Party seems to have taken uh, a turn. Uh, you know, not just against illegal immigration, um, but but uh, you know, seems much more concerned about legal immigration as well. And you know, I, I think I think uh, you know, while in general, I think the actual uh, kind of lasting impact of President Trump's approach to economic policy, you know, it really isn't going to outlast his presidency. Um, I think I think an exception to that. Uh, is likely to be immigration. Uh, with respect to COVID-19 relief, you argue that um, the coronavirus economy still needs help, uh, proposing something on the order of a trillion-dollar relief package, and and doing so uh, now against the backdrop of, as I said at the outset, of municipal, f- uh, or I should say, Fed facilities that are being shut down after spending a portion of the money that was allocated. Uh, even the payroll protection program, as successful as that was, had a balance or has a balance. Um, why another round of uh, government spending? Well, I think the economy needs it. You know, I think we, I think we very likely could slip back into negative economic growth. We could see rising unemployment uh, in the first quarter of the year, the first quarter of 2021, if if we don't have additional fiscal policy support from Congress. Even if we don't, you know, actually go back into a recession where the economy is shrinking and unemployment is rising. I think the best case scenario for the first quarter of 2021 without additional fiscal support is stagnation, basically moving sideways. Don't, don't you worry that by, that by doing that, we're just subsidizing these lockdown, lockdown policies rather than, rather than forcing an opening that really is what needs to happen? We, we need an economy that's open if we're going to have growth and, and opportunity. Um. Yeah, you know, I think I think that that I think there's an argument to to be said for that. I, I mean, I think I think that you know, even if we didn't have any lockdown policies this spring, uh, we would have had a severe recession. Um, so I think I think the lockdown policies certainly added to the severity of the recession. But I think I think if there were no lockdown policies, people were skittish enough um, that they would have pulled back enough that we would have had a severe recession. Uh, but I think when you're talking about 2021, which is which is really what we're talking about at this point, mm-hmm. you know, it's you know, I think I think I think you are kind of getting into uh, a situation where you know we're not going to have lockdown policies. Um, uh, the, I think the virus would have to get very bad for there to be lockdown policies, and so I'm I'm less worried about subsidizing lockdowns in 2021 than than I than I was in uh, in the spring of 2020. You know, and and, and the question is. You know, how much do we want to do for the economy? Uh, you know, this recession is still so unusual because 
there's really nothing wrong with the economy. Uh, normally in a recession, there's a problem uh, uh, in the economy that, that, that tips the economy into uh, uh, a downturn and, and, and that needs to be worked through. You know, uh, households have a lot of debt. You know, uh, housing prices are overvalued. You know, these sorts of things. Um, there's really nothing like that right now. And, and my concern, though, is that if we allow a period of economic weakness caused by the virus to fester, we're going to end up creating problems like that. Um, and so I think that if we if we if we continue to support the economy, to give the economy the support it needs, then once we get a vaccine and distribution, you know, we could really rapidly return to a very healthy, uh, a very healthy place. I worry that if we don't provide that support, um, then then the kinds of underlying problems that typically exist in recessions will develop in the U.S. economy. And then we could have a period of weakness for for uh, a couple of years, which would be which would be bad for workers, bad for households. Well, yeah, we we definitely better snap back in that scenario because we got a lot of debt to repay. So we 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 need the economy to be the economy again. <laughs> it right. seems to me, uh, Michael That's Strain, right. director director of economic policy studies, the Arthur F. Burns Scholar in Political Economy at the American Enterprise Institute. Michael, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Okay, thanks so much for having me. Happy Thanksgiving. You too. Take care. and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show and uh, picking up on one of the topics we touched on briefly with Michael Strain, but we'll develop more in depth now. We're pleased to be joined by Sheriff Joe Arpaio, former sheriff of Maricopa County, Arizona, author of An American Legend, which is available now in all the usual places, new book that explores the life and times and career of Sheriff Joe Arpaio, and it includes a foreword by the Motor City madman, Ted Nugent himself. Sheriff Joe, thanks so much for being with us. Appreciate it. Yeah, Sheriff Joe Arpaio, An American Legend, that's the book. I'm proud of it. And you can get it at Amazon. reason I wrote the book, I've been in law enforcement, uh, what, 55 years. Can never get the true story out, especially as sheriff in my previous life with the U.S. Drug Enforcement. I can go on and on. But uh, whatever I can answer your questions, I'll be glad to do it. Well, what is the uh, what's the truth about your time in, in your most perhaps high-profile position as sheriff of Maricopa County that uh, never got out that gets out in this book? One of the problems, uh, which I am very confused about, uh, probably the biggest hoax in the history of the U.S. By the way, I uh, supported uh, and always will uh, President Trump from day one when nobody would even get on the stage with him. July 2015. So I know he has some big hoax uh, that he's been fighting, too. But my big one is the Obama birth certificate. Uh, initiated that uh, in 2011, worked on it five years, and there's no doubt in my investigation that it's, uh, it's a fake document. And uh-huh. I can never get anybody to really look at it, whether it's the media or politicians or, you know, I can go on and on. So that's puzzled me how all these years that can be covered up and nobody will look at it. Did you talk about that in your book? Do you explore that in your book? 
I got a chapter, a very exciting chapter in the book. Which, by the way, since I was born, I kept records. I have a record of everything I've done, hills of Turkey, you name it. So there's nothing in that book that I can't back up with documentation. What about uh, your tenure as sheriff of Maricopa County when you were such a lightning rod for the uh, matter of quelling illegal immigration on the borders and and you were tagged just like the president's been tagged as being a racist because you were trying to enforce the law well you know when they can't get you on uh, anything else they throw the race card (laughs) i kept secret uh, or quiet in my uh, thousands and thousands of interviews all over the world and i don't have to excuse i'm not a racist that's period doing my job so they want to throw the race card let them do it uh, and and uh, th- throughout your story career, are, would it be fair to say that you're most proud that you arrested Elvis and let him go? <laughs> yeah, that's uh, one little blip uh, on the screen. Uh, I was a cop, and I, I joined the Army when the Korean War broke out. Then I always wanted to be a cop. So I joined the D.C., Washington, D.C., Metropolitan Police, walked a tough beat, a black beat for four years. And then uh, after leading off Eisenhower's parade, uh, I met the uh, sheriff of Vegas, and he said, come out west. So I went out west, joined the Vegas Police Department, spent six months there, and pulled over Albus. He was going 100 miles an hour with a beautiful blonde on his motorcycle, <laughs> took him down <laughs> took him down to the police station, and he conned me out of giving him a, a book in him. Um, and then eventually he gave many Cadillacs to police, he worked with uh, Nixon. We Nixon gave him one of my, one of our old Bureau of Narcotics badges. From Vegas, I joined the Bureau of Narcotics, predecessor to the DEA, and uh, worked 26 years. And as and, I mentioned, and, I was the, go ahead. No, and 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 just Elvis, you know, I mean that that was before traffic school, right? And so just no, it was a warning from sheriff. To, well, you know. Pre-sheriff Joe, yeah, he wasn't. Was, he, he wasn't drunk. He was just going on, just miles driving an fast. Hour. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so, he, he, on a motorcycle he, with a blonde. Well, he, he, he wanted to get somewhere fast. You know, uh, you can understand, I guess. In yeah, I don't know where he was going, but I think he was doing the Hawaii uh, movies at the time. This was 1957. Sure. Maybe Blue Hawaii. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, uh, with, with respect to um, uh, your. Hi, hi, uh, history in law enforcement. Think about your, as you said, 55 years in law enforcement and where policing is today and uh, how police are being treated, particularly in, in major cities, but uh, but not limited to major cities. W- w- did you ever think you'd uh, come to a day where there would be a movement to defund the police? Well, this is awful uh, because don't forget, I mentioned I started as a young cop, 21 years old, patrolling the Blackfeet. I wanted yeah. action. I sure got it. And then uh, revolved uh, all those years, ended up being sheriff in uh, 1993, longest in the history of Maricopa County, Arizona. And uh, now I see cops thrown under the bus. Larry Clayman, great lawyer, he and I just formed America's sheriff uh, because we're going after those that go after cops, throwing them under the bus. And I've been raising money since I retired in 1960. you know, for I think it was nineteen, it was two thousand sixteen, and uh, start raising money to help cops. Now it's important more than ever these days, because these politicians will do anything to, to save their jobs. 
including throwing the cops under the bus before they even have a chance to fight. Uh, so uh, that's what we do. Very with, active with, in that. With uh, all the jobs you had in law enforcement, was there a particular agency or a particular assignment that really stands out as the most memorable? Boy, that's tough. One reason I don't want to keep plugging a book, but one reason I wrote sure. the book, nobody knew my background. They all knew me as a sheriff. Pink underwear, chain gangs, tent cities, illegal immigration. I can go on and locking up corrupt officials. They never knew about my other life. I tried to get it out in every campaign, but nobody cared. All they wanted to do was talk about my tenure as a sheriff. Uh, so, yeah, I can go back to history. I can go back to undercover gun battles in Turkey, working with Noriega, had officers there, locking up the French Connection. Those were exciting days, including working uh, all over the country. I was head of many officers with the DEA. But then I uh, ran for sheriff and decided to use some of that knowledge and experience I had in my other life that helped me being the uh, sheriff. And uh, I took no prisoners. I worked hard. I obeyed the law. I was hung by the Obama administration in Holder. Eight years they tried to get me, and they ended up at a contempt of court, Mickey Mouse charge, where the federal judge hated me. I got proof of all that. And when you talk about a judicial system, boy, I'm a good example of what they did to me with nothing. So it's all politics, still is. Keep going after President Trump uh, because he's controversial doing his job. Same thing they did with me. The issue of pardon uh, on this contempt of court, I didn't ask for it, but I appreciate he did it because right. that was his first pardon. He right. knew it was a, a witch hunt. So, um, you know, I went through a lot, a lot well, of those and, situations. And uh, everything that he lived through and he did in uh, the area of law enforcement memorialized in this new book, Joe Arpaio, an American legend, former sheriff of Maricopa County, Arizona, author of an American legend, as I mentioned, the forward by Ted Nugent pick that up at Amazon, available now. Sheriff Joe, thanks so much for joining us and good luck with the book. And thank you. Call me anytime. Thank you. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show, and uh, the vassals are getting restless all over the country, including in uh, Buffalo, uh, where uh, this went viral over the weekend, gathering of about 50 business owners and their supporters inside a, a gym that had been shut down by COVID-19 restrictions, turned into a bit of a confrontation with county officials, both a health inspector as well as county sheriffs. Listen to how that went. These people actually work for their money, and they don't want to lose their livelihood. I've lost friends, Call I've lost family home. who've killed themselves. I've seen clients die because they've lost their livelihood. I'm sorry to hear that. I know you are, and I'm just a pale, I'm asking for you to guys have some compassion for the people that have lost everything. We do have compassion for people who Okay, well, you need to go have compassion out in the parking lot. This is private property. This is, this is private property. This, 
This is private property. It's private property. Go get a warrant. Listen, man, this is private property. They're not wanted here. So do your jobs. Well, her job is. Well, oh, no, no. Your you job is to remove people that are not wanted here. You have a She's We're wanted here. Department. They're not. Do you She's have a hiding your name tag. I'm not. It's right here. It's my name. They're just doing their job. There we go. You should all be wearing masks. How come I'm not doing you have masks wrong. on? Don't worry about my health. My health is in your concern. You're meant to be wearing a mask. It's a government. Okay, well, then write me up. It's the law. Okay, then then, then take me to jail. It's not the law. Then take me to jail. When the sheriff doesn't know the law. Show me the law. Well, I think we got to go, Mask. You have to leave. You guys have to leave. You have to leave. Right now, you're trespassing without a warrant. You need to leave. You're trespassing. You're not trespassing. You're trespassing. It doesn't matter. We have a right to be here. Get a warrant. Go get a warrant. Bring a warrant. Go get a warrant. Yes, you do. Do. Come back with the warrant or you leave. Don't write the law. Outside. No, go on your They've phone outside. Go on your phone outside. I would really like it if you Where did you hear the report? Okay, we would like to do that right now. We would like to do that right now. Who reported it? Who reported it? Who reported it? You know what? I don't know. Yeah, it's anonymous, right? It's anonymous. It can't be anonymous. You need to know you're accusing. You need to know it cannot be anonymous. You gotta go get a warrant. It cannot be anonymous. You gotta go get a warrant. You don't get the right policies. You don't get to violate the Constitution. It does not matter. You don't circumvent or subvert the Constitution. Okay, Meth, you need to leave. And ultimately, they did get out. They forced the health inspector, code enforcement officer, and the sheriff's police out. Uh, what does that say about uh, where things are getting, particularly because this was precipitated by an anonymous complaint to the local government that dispatched those local government officials? For more, we're pleased to be joined again by Don Boudreau, American economist, author, professor, co-director of the program on the American economy and globalization at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Don, uh, people's uh, nerves are getting a little frayed with these lockdown policies. Yeah, yeah quite. Uh, what, what was that all about? We're protesting the lockdown policies outside of Buffalo and uh, didn't appreciate that uh, the local sheriff's police came out with a health inspector because of a snitch call. Oh. And this is where this is this is where right. But this is where the lives of other culture goes, doesn't it? Very sad. Very and, sad. It, and predictable. It, it is predictable, and and it's predictable in part because of incidents like we saw last week, where the same governor who said you should wear a mask a- after every bite of food you take, so take a bite of food, put your mask back on, bite of food, mask, is at the French Laundry having a thousand dollar a plate dinner with some California Medical Association types uh, and 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 having a good old time indoors in violation of all of these edicts that. Uh, he has promulgated and so it says two things one the rules don't apply to me that's obvious the second thing it says is i don't really believe this is as risky as i'm telling you it is absolutely absolutely correct it's 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 political theater the 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 media and a lot of politicians have people riled up stoking people's fear instinct uh people are walking around uh, uh with vastly exaggerated notions of how dangerous COVID is, of who COVID strikes, and and therefore uh, we're, we're all fearful, and so politicians are responding to that. But of course, you're exactly right, Dan. Uh, Gavin Gavin Newsom doesn't really believe; otherwise, he wouldn't have been doing what he was doing at the French Laundry. George Orwell predicted this so well: some pigs are more equal than others. 
and 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 Gavin Newsom is one of the pigs who's more equal than others. He gets to violate his own his own edicts and his actions, as you rightly show, as you rightly say, demonstrate that he understands it's theater and not reality. He definitely is one of the pigs. I will grant you that. Uh, when we come back with Don Boudreau, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the underreported uh, announcement by Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin. Uh, recalling federal funds that were not used as part of the original CARES Act, even while there is a push for yet another COVID relief package. Uh, more with Don Boudreau, economist, co-director of the program on the American Economy and Globalization at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. We'll be right back. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is this. Is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Don Boudreau, American economist, author, professor, co-director of the program on the American economy and globalization at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Don, um, the Secretary of the Treasury, says Steve Mnuchin, has said uh, an Missive over to Jay Powell at the Fed saying uh, we're shutting down or you're shutting down nine of the 13 liquidity facilities that were set up that are and set to close on December 31st, including the one to and to backstop the corporate bond market, the one for the Main Street Lending Program for small and medium-sized businesses, as well as the Municipal Liquidity Fund for state and local government bond issuers. That those facilities uh, uh, only. Uh, used uh, 25 of the $454 billion that were allocated, not quite to the extent, but sort of like the payroll protection program that left, I think, something on the order of $130 billion un- undeployed. And, um, like that, yeah, yeah the, the Fed is not happy about that because Jay Powell wants as many tools in his toolbox as possible. But, but this is all happening against the backdrop of a push from both parties, really, for more COVID relief expenditures. Yep. So, first of all, how inefficient must a program be when people don't take advantage of subsidized or free money? Uh, it, <laughs> right. it just boggles the mind, right? And second, I know I sound like a broken record, but this so much of this is, is theater. And so the government's locking us down. It's obstructing production. It's destroying supply chains. It's destroying our way of life. And, and government, what does government do? Right? Well, we'll throw money at the problem. We'll throw money at the problem. And, and, and they're so inefficient at throwing money at the problem, they can't even get people to catch the money that they're throwing at the problem. Nevertheless, it's not stopping them. They're going to now throw more money at the problem. That's what politicians do. They throw other people's money at problems that they, the politicians, create, and then they parade around and prance around as heroes as if they're somehow our great saviors and we couldn't survive without them. It's truly disgusting. But yet I, I, I read economists like Michael Strain, who we had on this program, over at the American Enterprise Institute, which is, you know, it's ostensibly a center-right think tank, saying that uh, don't be fooled. The uh, coronavirus economy still needs some help. We still need to think about uh, targeted relief, you know, maybe on the order of uh, about a trillion bucks, including enhanced unemployment benefits and, and so forth, to continue to smooth over this period of uh, at least uh, some of the states being on lockdown. Yeah, I greatly respect Michael Strain. I, I know him. He wrote a wonderful book earlier this year on the myth of the decline of, of the American middle class. Uh, he's a very good economist. I disagree with him on, on this matter. What, we, what this economy needs is not more uh, funny money, not more stimulus either from the Fed or from Congress. What this country needs 
is more economic freedom. We need to be released from the lockdowns. We need to be released from the hysteria, the derangement over COVID, and we need to let people get back to work on their own to find out where they belong in the economy. Throwing money after this problem is not going, it's not going to solve it. So on, on this, I respectfully disagree with Michael, and I do so strongly. One thing we've seen, and this, is, this has been a silver lining in this whole very dark cloud, is that the American economy is shockingly resilient. So despite taking a hammering, it keeps on. I mean, you go to your supermarkets, and they're not like they were in January, but the, the, somehow the shelves remain reasonably full. Somehow the lights continue to come on. And so it's not that we need more money from Congress. We don't need more liquidity from the Fed. We need the obstructions to disappear. And that is the only solution for long-term restored economic growth that's going to deliver and keep delivering prosperity to ordinary and, and, and poor Americans. Not more money from Congress, not more liquidity from the Fed. It's a bit remarkable that um, there's this uh, philosophy that persists. Essentially, they don't argue it in these terms because this isn't the best way to argue it, but we don't need an economy. We just need government spending. Yes. And, you know, look, I mean, I, I'm a skeptic of government stimulus in, in normal times. But the mistake I think Michael is making, because a lot, a lot of people do make it. A lot of people are smarter than, than, than I make it. Some of, them, some of them have Nobel Prizes in economics. That doesn't mean they're uh, smarter. They, they think about the past battles. Oh, well, you know, so we have this, we have a demand-driven recession. Consumers are, are pessimistic, so they're not spending. Investors are pessimistic, so they're not, they're not investing. Well, how to, how, to, how to get around that? Well, you prime the pump with government spending or with, we flood the, the market with more money. I don't think that works very well even in normal times, but if it's going to work, those are the conditions under which it will work. It's not going to work at all under these current conditions. The problem now is not that consumers don't want to spend money. It's not that investors don't want to invest money. It's that governments will not allow it to happen in a productive way. It's obstructing too much of it. Well, uh, I, I, you would think yeah. you would think they that that's, they would take judicial notice of what people are actually doing. You know, my, my, this goes back to getting like modeling. Here's how we think it's going to work, and then we're just going to ignore the reality on the ground that's happening right before our very eyes. So, for example, just the migratory patterns, the 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 yeah. the hollowing out of places like New York and Chicago and San Francisco and L.A. for places like Scottsdale and Austin and Dallas and South Florida. Does, does that tell them anything? Apparently not. Apparently not. Um, again, Michael's a very good economist. I, I do respect him, but but so many economists—he's he, not as guilty as most. So many economists just look at their their, their textbook models, what they draw on a whiteboard, the equations they, they they write in their in their class notes, and they think that they somehow understand this incredibly complex, changing economy that today is operating under completely unprecedented conditions. Uh, but they have these this limited set of tools, and that's what they look at, and that's what they that's what they revert to. And it's it's only it's only making matters worse. And uh, to to your point about so much of this being theater, I mean, if if it wasn't obvious, then I think Andrew Cuomo getting an international Emmy Award for the use of television during the pandemic really really locks down locks down that position, doesn't it? Unbelievable! It, it, this uh, you know the world, Dan, to me is just it, it, it's so much of this seems to be completely deranged. Uh, uh, I didn't think I'd live to see. Let's the world today. Yes, uh, the, the great dystopian novelists of uh, the last century, the Orwells and the Vonnegut's, and they, they, their imagination wasn't fertile enough, it turns out. It seems not to have been because this is this is just a calamity, and I worry even, even if we get even if a, you know 100 percent effective vaccine gets distributed today miraculously to everyone, and suddenly people lose their fear of COVID-19. Uh, now that we've learned, now that politicians have learned that they can basically grab as much power as they want by shutting people down, by frightening them with 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 fears of disease, because look, this 
happens in, in, in throughout all of human history. New diseases, new new viruses are going to emerge. This is COVID nineteen is not certainly not the first. It won't be the last. So I worry about the precedent precedent that has been set. People are going to be, be frightened into this horror that, that they're in now by politicians. I don't. Unfortunately, I don't, I'm very pessimistic. As you can probably tell about about going forward, even after the COVID nineteen is is. Somehow passed us. He is Don. He is Don Boudreaux, American economist, author, professor, co-director of the program of the on, program on the American economy and globalization at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Don, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. My great pleasure, Dan. Thanks. Take care. Show.com. Welcome back to the show. And just uh, picking up on our conversation with Don Boudreaux, um, I had South Florida on my mind because I was one of the, I don't know, a couple million people who uh, defied the orders of uh, the CDC and our safetyist overlords and uh, flew down to South Florida over the weekend out of Chicago. It was interesting. <laughs> uh, I don't know why exactly, because nobody's at the airports anymore, even at least they weren't Sunday morning, early Sunday morning when I flew, but uh, didn't have to take our shoes off going through security. Don't have to take your shoes off today. Same machine, same protocols, but uh, today for some reason didn't have to take your shoes off. I guess they were under some sort of time crunch. I don't know. Maybe they get a bonus for processing so many people in such a time. I, I, I wish they would if they don't actually to encourage such efficiency. But it was just interesting to me. Don't have to take your shoes off. Well, wait a second. Why not? I mean, are we pursuing convenience over safety? Or is it just a reminder of how much performance art we accept to have a false sense of security. I mean, it just struck me, removing shoes is to stopping her- uh, terrorist hijackings what masks are to stopping the spread of COVID-19. It's just something you do because you feel like I'm checking a box that says now I'm safe, regardless of the the merits. How much how much we, we accept, the infringements we accept, the inconveniences we accept, the expertise that we confer where it is not warranted. The debate is over forever and ever because of uh, Richard Reed, the shoe bomber, forever and ever and ever. The way to stop uh, terrorist hijackings is to make sure you take your shoes off before you go through the scanner. I mean, except if anybody's in a hurry. Right. Uh, More common sense on the topic of lockdowns and (laughs) I guess performative art policies. Uh, comes from this little kid, and I have no context on this next clip you're about to hear, and don't really care because it's just a great uh, impersonation of what Joe Pesci must have been like at eight, 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 uh, eight years old. This is this young kid arguing with his mom about lockdowns. Next weekend, it's going to be so nice, like 60, 65, like that. We could sit outside on the porch. No, the lockdown. Oh. A lockdown is when you say the f*** inside, not the f*** outside. Do you know what a lockdown is when you say the f*** inside? 
We could sit outside on the porch. I'll lock the lockdown. Is when you stay the f inside, not the f outside. So you plan on staying in the house till like June? The f lockdown. You have to stay the f inside. Not the f outside. What the f? Yeah, that's sort of uh, impenetrable logic that uh, you get sort of at a Tony Fauci press conferences, minus the uh, profanity. It's a cute little kid there. Look for him to star in the remake of Goodfellas in about 30 years. This is Dan Proffitt. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Again, you can uh, follow the program at danproffshow.com. Follow us on social media at danproft and at danproffshow, including Parlor. This story is just delicious, isn't it? An English-language newspaper controlled by the Chinese Communist Party's propaganda department. That would be China Daily. Paid U.S. media companies nearly $2 million for printing and advertising expenses over the past six months, even amid heightened scrutiny over Beijing's ongoing disinformation campaigns in the West. China Daily paid the Wall Street Journal 85 grand, LA Times 340 grand. Uh, these uh, from disclosures uh, made uh, that are required under the Justice Department's Foreign Agent Registration Act. China Daily paid Foreign Policy Magazine. Oh, there you go, establishmentarian foreign policy uh, rags, uh, internationalist in nature. Foreign policy gets a hundred grand. Financial Times in the UK, two hundred twenty-three grand. One hundred thirty-two grand for Canadian, uh, for Canada's Globe and Mail. One hundred ten for the um, LA Times, ninety-two grand. Houston Chronicle, seventy-six grand. The Boston Globe. I, I say this because isn't it fun how the DC press corps and their outlets around the country, the major dailies along with big tech, are happy to do the bidding for some of the most brutal regimes on the planet and yet spend all of their time worried about the one-off conservative donor or conservative donor group who you know, starts an outlet. You know, they got, they're really worried about uh, delisting the Washington Examiner uh, or otherwise censoring you know, standard-issue conservative outlets. But uh, you know, taking money from China, running interference for China and other despotic regimes, not a problem. For more on this, particularly the big tech piece, we're pleased to be joined again by Tennessee Senator Marsha Blackburn. Senator Blackburn, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Yes, delighted to join you. Thank you for having me on today. Uh, I know uh, you were one of those who had a go at uh, Zuckerberg and Dorsey the last time the two gentlemen appeared uh, before the Senate, uh, the relevant Senate committee, um, along with Ted Cruz and Josh Howley and others. And, um, you know, I think the the frustration among conservatives is, and, and frankly, even some of the senators, as expressed by Josh Hawley, is to say that the hearings are, are useful. Um, it's important to whistle these guys before the Senate and have them answer questions and, and have the American public be able to hear the quality of the questions and answers and, and assess the information themselves. But at some point, uh, the Republicans need to decide what it exactly it is they want to do 
and uh, pursue doing it. And and I think people are impatient for something to be done about big tech. Well, and we do have my legislation, the Online Freedom and Viewpoint Diversity Act, and I've been joined by both Chairman Graham of Judiciary Committee and Chairman Wicker of Commerce Committee, the two committees that have this jurisdiction. And that is the reform bill for Section 230. And that bill was filed back in September. It is ready to be marked up in judiciary. The hearing that we had last week was in part um, a fact-finding hearing in support of passing that legislation. So we are doing something. Now, I will tell you this. We have tried. I've worked on this Section 230 issue for three years, and it has been very difficult to get support to move legislation forward. And, yes, it does take a while, but also, Dan, the issue of privacy, all this data mining and selling your data and invading your personal you, as I call it, that is something that um, we have worked on for eight years, and we finally have bipartisan agreement on that bill. It is moving through the Senate. My hope is that we are going to see that passed very soon and uh, that we will have a federal privacy standard with one set of rules for the entire Internet ecosystem with one regulator, the Federal Trade Commission, and that we will end this practice of the big tech companies data mining you, selling your information to the highest bidder, um, and how they go in uh, and assume they have rights. It would give you, the consumer, the right to say, no big tech, you cannot follow me, you cannot censor me, you cannot have access to my information unless I give explicit consent. And, and so, so yeah, um, just to make this concrete, you know, one of the examples of concern from conservatives is, okay, uh, you want to strip Section 230 uh, protections from big tech, but you know, if I run a conservative blog, I had this very conversation with William Jacobson, who's a Cornell law professor who runs Legal Insurrection. Um, am I then going to have legal exposure for what somebody publishes in the comments section on my blog? Am I going to be a, considered a publisher then and have the same legal exposure that they're talking about ha uh, for Facebook or Twitter? And so how would you respond to that? No, it would not give you exposure for something someone says your comment section. That's the kind of practice that we are seeking to end because they've shut down sites because they did not like something that came up in the content section. Uh, I mean the comment, excuse me, comment section. Now, they also will censor people not give a reason. Let me give you an example of that. We all know the Trump Accountability Project is something that AOC, the squad, uh, some of Pete Buttigieg's staffers are starting uh, because they want to blacklist people that supported for, voted for, uh, worked in the Trump administration. I had put up a post that in the United States of America, we do not create blacklists and try to ruin the lives, kill the careers of people who disagree with us politically. And um, 
this is a you I fight every day to protect the free speech of people who disagree with me on issues, but they have a right to their opinion. So I put that post up that we do not do these blacklists in this country. Facebook, yeah, Facebook then blocked my post. So I brought this up to Zuckerberg because I said nothing about the election. I said nothing about the election results. I simply said, we don't do that here in the United States. We have a history of respecting robust, respectful political debate, having a point, having a counterpoint. And it was astounding to me that they chose to block that or censor that post. In uh, in a perspective Biden administration, if that's what comes to pass, what is uh, the uh, the issue that you, that you and your colleagues on the Senate Republican Caucus are most discussing in terms of the need to to work in solidarity with one another to prevent, you know, is it a Green New Deal? Is it uh, some of what Joe Biden's already been talking about, for example, with the college loan forgiveness uh, plan? What What would it be? Uh, One of the things that um, I am going to be focused on is um, dealing with China, making certain that we hold them to account. They took our jobs. They sent us this virus. I'm also focused on this technology accountability and making certain that – that we deal with Section 230 and that we deal with online privacy so that these companies don't own the virtual you so that you own your virtual you. We also need to be paying attention to great power competition and what China is doing there in the military space, their aggressiveness. Um, We also should uh, be encouraging our state legislatures to pass the necessary rules and laws at the state level, implement the necessary rules so that these local communities clean up these voter rolls. That is a responsibility of your local county election commission. So every county in this country should make it a priority to know who has moved away and who is deceased, and they should be cleaning up these voter rolls so that we nip this problem in the butt. She is United States Senator Marsha Blackburn. She is a Republican from Tennessee, where a lot of uh, former Chicago residents now live. Senator Blackburn, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Glad to be with you. Thank you. Sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. The good news out this morning that uh, the Oxford AstraZeneca group has developed a vaccine they believe is between 62 and 90 
75% effective depending on the dosage. Sort of the handle is 70%. So this uh, goes along with Moderna and Pfizer that are moving with uh, alacrity to a vaccine to market. The head of Operation Warp Speed saying that uh, he expects the first Americans will start to be inoculated with the vaccine, probably Pfizer's first to market, by like December 11th or 12th. But the vaccines coming online, of course, calls to mind a, a number of other logistical but also ethical issues, including, well, who should be first in line. For more of that discussion, pleased to be joined again by Dr. Sally Sattel, resident from the American Enterprise Institute. Dr. Sattel, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Oh, thank you. On, on the, uh, the distribution of the vaccine, particularly in the early stages, there's this rank order prioritization, and there's some disagreement among researchers. Uh, there's what uh, the Fauci's and the CDC and the National Academy of Sciences say, and there's what researchers at places like Johns Hopkins suggest about uh, what makes sense in terms of rank order priority. How do you see the prioritization? And, and I know you've written about uh, the insinuation of racial politics into this, which is, of course, inevitable, but also dangerous. But, um, you know, how we should think about the distribution of the vaccine, since not everybody who wants it can get it at the same time. Well, it's very complicated. So by no means is this easy. And there should be. It's, it's completely expectable that there would be some controversy because public health experts and bioethicists are really juggling four considerations, especially if they're thinking about this in terms of groups, you know, which groups to prioritize. And the first is, you know, who's at high risk? Actually, I'm not even putting these in rank order, just saying one is group risk, which groups are at the highest risk of exposure which groups play the most critical role in maintaining the healthcare system and keeping society running, uh, which groups are most likely to transmit the virus to others, and who's most likely to die. And it's not clear which go first, with the exception, I should say, of healthcare workers. There's pretty much universal agreement that healthcare workers who were exposed on a regular basis, you know, would come first. And there's also general consensus that those with the vulnerable illnesses, those who are immunosuppressed, those with cancer, other kinds of conditions would go first. Those vulnerabilities make them more susceptible, both to in, probably infection and, and also to dying if they catch it. But after that, it's, it's complicated. In the UK, for example, they're considering prioritizing after that by age. I've heard some suggestions that maybe we should do it by zip code because the real point when it comes to other vulnerable groups are people who are exposed in the course of their daily lives. They're not people like me. I'm very fortunate I can work from home. These are folks who have to take public transportation. They are in jobs where they interact with the public a lot. They often live, uh, if they're lower income, they may live in households that are, tend to be crowded. And all these put people at risk. In fact, the National Academy of, of, of um of medicine actually do suggest that we prioritize according to a social vulnerability index that takes into account poverty, unemployment, health insurance, other socioeconomic vulnerabilities. And I think that makes sense because fundamentally we want to prioritize by who is at risk. And this is where the suggestion that we might give some priority to people according to race becomes problematic because even though race does correlate, at least African-American and Hispanic race ethnicity does correlate with rates of 
infection, there's no question about that, and even mortality, it's really the risk. It's really the fact that these uh, folks tend to be disproportionately represented in the lower income groups. So it's really the risk that is the cause. The race is just the correlate. And when we're working with public health, we have to pay attention to cause. So, so th- this is my confusion in these discussions. So how does that make sense if it's based on vulnerability? Because we know what the incidence of transmission is professionally for teachers to the extent that you know they're even in the classroom at present. It's the same thing that daycare workers I saw listed in the top three. Why? There's a Yale study of 57,000 child care centers that found basically nil uh, transmission. So, I mean, I, I, you know, I get theoretically, you, you would say, oh, well, this is, teaching is important, so we want to inoculate teachers. Yeah, okay, I agree teaching is important, but if it's, if it's, if it's based on the risk that you present, the, the environment and, and the risk, then actually teachers and daycare workers doesn't make sense in terms of priority. Well, I did mention at the beginning that there were about four kinds of imperatives to juggle. And one of those four was which, you know, what is the group that plays a critical role in maintaining society? And teachers uh, and kids being in school so their parents can work has a big role in maintaining the, the economy. Yeah. So that's another variable to juggle. Um, right. That's why what? it's so darn complicated. <laughs> right. I mean, it's, 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 it's darn political, which is why it gets darn complicated, I suppose. I mean, Johns Hopkins takes a, an interestingly, I thought, a, a bit of a counterintuitive approach. They said actually prioritize young people, even though their uh, the, their risk is low. Um, that you have uh, you you put them back into a general right. population, as it were, put them back into society, and actually with them inoculated, that it overall reduces the spread, and it uh, will ultimately lead to more lives saved. Yes, and again, I come back to those four things I mentioned. And the one was, are, are certain groups more likely to transmit the virus than others? And those would be the kids, exactly, because even though they themselves are not that vulnerable to illness, yeah, they, they can. So that's why it's so tough. But when I was focusing on risk, I was thinking um, uh, in the context of race. Uh, and that's where uh, race does not, um, race itself does not increase risk. It's it's the the social um, correlates of of race. In, in other words, again, the the uh, the social vulnerability. Right, but, and as, uh, race, as you, yeah. yeah, and as you mentioned in your piece too, that you know the whole race thing. You can play the race card a few different ways. On the one hand, you say, well, it should be blacks and, and Latinos first because of the higher incidence, and as you say, the correlation between socioeconomic status. Uh, and on the flip side, you, you, may, you get uh, some uh, black Americans saying, well, wait, I'm not taking the vaccine first. I'm not going to be your guinea pig. You know, I mean, so, you, can, you know, some people you're not you can't win for losing. Well, that's true. That's very true. Um, uh, frankly, there's not enough, um, I think, willingness to take the vaccine among all Americans. I mean, even among uh, whites when asked by um, I think it was a Harris stat poll and they were said if the vaccine were over 90 percent. Effective, and this was before the Pfizer announcement. So uh, they were anticip- they weren't, I think, even anticipating could have such potential success with it. And they said if it were ninety percent effective, um, only two thirds of of, uh, of all Americans would take it, and it was um, about fifty percent for African Americans. And so, um, frankly, everyone, I, I would hope the vaccine hesitancy would, would start to melt across the country. But it is, it is uh, the resistance is uh, disproportionately higher among African-Americans. And, you know, they will invoke the Tuskegee experiment from 
you know, that ended in 1972, but that's a, you know, a classic um, uh, example of, uh, uh, you know, abuse of a, of a group to allegedly advance uh, science. When we come back with Dr. Sally Sattel, I want to continue our discussion of vaccine distribution and some of the bioethical concerns about it. More with Dr. Sattel right after this. It's a nice day to start again. Come on, it's a nice day for a white wedding. It's a nice day to start again. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Before the break, we were speaking with Dr. Sally Sattel, and uh, I want to pick up on a problem that you brought up with respect to the uh, percentage of Americans who don't trust, are skeptical of taking the vaccine. This is all an issue of trust. I don't trust the public health officials. I don't trust the institutions. And what you have here now across the board, that transcending racial categories, maybe from different angles, but transgendering races, a lot of I don't trust because of the pronouncements made by so many public health officials like that this was received wisdom from on high that has turned out not to be received wisdom and has turned out to really uh, be only the only end result is not necessarily saving lives um, at all in addition to negatively impacting the quality of my life for an extended period of time, much longer than was initially suggested. Right. There is a lot of distrust. And that's actually a um, kind of a free-floating problem that doctors and public health have to deal with. But in this particular example, I think it was also exacerbated by, ironically, the name of the operation, you know, Operation Warp Speed, which sounds great. And it, it, it was Warp Speed. And it, it, it's all apparently, it, we're not done yet, but it looks so promising. And this seems like an enormous success. But the name implies that we rush this through. And so some people are cautious about that. And then there was a, you know, an animosity towards um, President Trump. And so anything that he was um, behind, and especially to the extent that he wanted this revealed before the election, that didn't happen. But that also created, you know, a fair amount of, of anxiety and suspicion as well. So, yeah, it's clearly a very much a social phenomenon uh, as well as a medical one. With respect to um, th- that trust issue and credibility, do you find this to be the case, the unwillingness to incorporate uh, studies in discussions that run against whatever the countervailing wisdom is? Uh, the, what, I should say whatever the prevailing wisdom is. There is no opportunity for any countervailing input. So, for example, over the last couple of weeks, two studies, one from the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, another from a group of Danish researchers that suggest that mask wearing is basically ineffective. It basically has no impact. In point of fact, in the ICON study done with the U.S. Marines, uh, those U.S. Marines that did not wear masks were infected at a lower rate than the Marines that were on lockdown wearing double cloth masks or double surgical masks for the period of the experimentation. But but yet I, I don't hear any of that conversation. All I just hear is more mask zeitgeist. Even your colleague, Dr. Scott Gottlieb over at American Enterprise Institute, writing in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend, is not reconsidering uh, mask wearing as some sort of 
half-ass panacea to be blunt about it but he's talking about oh we now now we need to wear better quality masks well right because we know an n95 is better than a surgical is better than a cloth well i know we've known that for eight months so why are you saying it now what's the magic now that the unwillingness to address uh, peer-reviewed academic studies that don't comport with the policy you're currently proposing i think is a real credibility destroyer Well, I think you're right about that. I think we still have more research to do, but often when things get presented in the media is is if this is final word, when often they are kind of provisional words. And so then when another study comes out that disagrees with it, it's confusing and people get whiplash. And then, of course, these studies are very complicated, extraordinarily complicated to uh, parse. A lot of times they're done with models. And models are only as good as the assumptions, and sometimes the assumptions are wrong. So sometimes it's not that much of a surprise that you get different answers, but it's incredibly confusing to the to public. I understand that, and I, I believe I was on your show a few after George Floyd, and we talked about, I'm paraphrasing only slightly, but it's okay to get out there and march because this is a good cause. Right. Um, and, yeah, and that was before we realized, you, you, you know, if you're outside and you're not on top of everyone someone else screaming you're probably going to be okay i mean the the march last two weeks ago was it last week um here in washington dc the the uh the trump supporters yeah right. um a lot of them were wearing masks and um and they were uh the point is you know we we're not hearing about outbreaks from that so yeah um, and so, yeah and it's you know it's just the larger issue too. Anybody who says the science, to your point, anybody who says the science is settled is not a serious person because the science is never settled. That's the point of science. But yet we're told by these politicians and these TV scientists that the the debate is over, the science is settled, even as research is going on. That's uh, finding out new things or finding out uh, things that we thought were new or old. Science, when they say science says, I understand what they mean, <laughs> but it does imply that this is a definitive. Uh, uh, result and and in in many cases it, it, as you say it's provisional and science doesn't say anything the data say something and those data as you note um, can, can change over time uh, there are certain topics where the, the the data are still um, subject to revision and this is one of them she is Dr Sally Sattel, resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute Dr Sattel, thanks for joining us again appreciate it thank you very much. The more you'll know, this is, this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. And just uh, continuing on the same topic we were discussing with uh, Dr. Uh, Sally Sattel, hey, uh, the, the, the frustration that is... Uh, bubbling over and it's interesting uh, with respect to COVID-19 lockdown restrictions obviously you mentioned earlier in the program uh, in our conversation with Don Boudreau the incident in Buffalo where those 50 some odd business owners pushed out of their private property or of the private property of a gym owner both a uh, code enforcement officer as well as county sheriff's police basically you know saying arrest me or get out so they got out over the weekend another police chief named Andrew Kudik police chief of Howell Township in New Jersey. He was on Fox and Friends, 
And uh, he, he sort of gave an important perspective because the frustration of the actual law enforcers, too. They don't want to be in the position of doing something they don't think is right and having to fall back on the I'm just doing my job Nuremberg defense. Uh, I'm out there in the community driving around and I see how much they're hurting. So as a police chief in charge of 100 plus police officers, uh, I felt it was just incumbent upon me just to let them know and my community know that we're not going to basically enforce some of these executive orders, which I feel are basically draconian. We all know we're not going to be used to go door to door uh, on something like that, whereas we're checking to see how many people are are gathered for Thanksgiving, especially when political activities are exempt from the executive order. He sees the hypocrisy like everybody else, but at least he's challenging the premise because so much of the conversation between reporters and politicians, these lockdown politicians, is starting from their premise that the order or advisory, which in many cases as the effect of an order is legitimate and then it's just a question of is it possible to enforce whoa 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 it's it's a question of the state's authority first not just the state's ability question of the state's authority first not just of the state's ability uh and part of the frustration is not just the arbitrariness of these lockdown rules it's also the hypocrisy of the politicians locking people down yes and it's the uh failure of experts to demonstrate expertise. Uh, Well, the combination of the failure to demonstrate both humility and expertise, humility about what we don't know and what we're trying to find out, and then expertise in terms of recommendations that are flexible enough to adjust to a changing understanding of what we didn't know that we were pursuing. Let me give you an example of what I mean by that. A quarter of us may already be immune. 25% of people may already be immune to the coronavirus without ever having been infected. Public Health England followed nearly 2,850 key workers from police, fire, and health services to gauge levels of immunity to COVID-19. Researchers found a quarter had high high levels of T-cells, which recognized the virus, suggesting that some had level, they had some level of protection against the virus, yet nearly half of those had never been infected. Well, it turns out, that this isn't a surprise to people who actually know what they're talking about, such as Dr. Michael Yaden, who is a uh, biochemist and respiratory disease expert. He was a VP at Pfizer. He uh, posted an interesting 30-minute talk that went through some of the things that the English advisory medical organization called SAGE got wrong at the outset, the premise, the false premises they started from. Just like the false premise about it's just about ability, not authority. The false premises that these public health professionals started from, which is why they drove so many false conclusions, at least initially. And one of them is on this topic of innate immunity. So that per what Rand Paul and others, including on this show, have argued, is that uh, the percentage of the population that still has a vulnerability to COVID is much less than the so-called experts are telling you. Uh, here's Yates. Sage has got several fundamental things wrong and that has led to advice that's inappropriate and uh, not only has had horrible economic effects, but has had continuing medical effects in that people are no longer being treated properly. Sage took the view that since SARS-CoV-2 was a, quote, new virus, that they believed there wouldn't be any immunity at all in the population. So I think that's the first thing. I remember hearing that and and I puzzled because I I already knew, because I read the scientific literature, that 
SARS-CoV-2 is 80% similar to another virus you may have heard of called SARS that moved around the world a bit in 2003. And more than that, it's quite similar in pieces of it to common cold causing coronaviruses. So when I heard that there was this coronavirus moving across the world, I, I wasn't as worried as perhaps other people were because I figured that since uh, there are four common cold causing coronaviruses, I figured that quite a lot of the population would be exposed to one of those viruses and would probably have a perhaps substantial protective immunity. Uh, it seems that his intuition was right per this most recent study, but it just doesn't change the attitude of these COVID enthusiasts, these ideologues. Let me give you an example. Dr. Emily Landon is an infectious disease expert from the University of Chicago. She's a top advisor to Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker with respect to his lockdown policies. Listen to what she has to say about vaccines. Even with all the news out today about uh, Oxford AstraZeneca combined with Pfizer and Moderna, even with the head of Operation Warp Speed suggesting that uh, the first Americans may be inoculated as soon as December 11th and 12th, listen to what she says about vaccines and returning to something approximating pre-COVID-19 normal. But we still have to finish the couple months of safety analysis. Some of the later enrolled participants are still undergoing that safety analysis. You want to make sure that they not just don't get COVID, but that they also don't have any side effects from the vaccine. Once that's been accomplished, then these, these companies can apply for emergency use authorization through the FDA. Their data safety and monitoring boards are made up of independent individuals who review the data. They are not part of the study and they provide these interim analyses and they'll provide another one. And if they have sufficient numbers of of events to say that their vaccine really is effective and they have not had too many um, sort of negative side effects, then they can apply. They'll advise these uh, drug companies to apply for an emergency use authorization. It's going to take a long time for the vaccines to make a difference in the way we live our lives. Even with the vaccines, you think we're turning a corner. And Dr. Emily Landon, like so many of these COVID enthusiasts and uh, television doctors, don't want to give up the authority. They're enjoying it, enjoying their newfound uh, importance and fame. Uh, And what they'll find out is, as we reflect back on this, sometime removed, that fame will become infamy for the policies that they promoted, their myopia and inability or unwillingness to balance trade-offs in the recommendations that they made to politicians. And the politicians will live in infamy, too. This is Dan Proff. danproffshow.com Welcome back to the show, closing out uh, this installment, thinking about Thanksgiving dinner, but not like this. DIY, that's, you know, urban acronym lingo. Do it yourself. How about the DIY meat kit? Yeah. You are what you eat, or maybe you eat what you are. The DIY meat kit, growing steaks made from human cells. Yeah. Um, 
people think that eating oneself is cannibalism, which technically this is not, said Grace Knight, one of the designers of this program, uh, telling a magazine about this. Now, um, the uh, cooking steaks from your cells or yeah, generating steaks from your cells, which is what this proposes, is actually not a real thing. This New York Post reporting it. Don't let the headline belie you. Read the story. Uh, this is uh, some sort of uh, <laughs> social commentary about uh, the meat industry. Of course it is. Growing yourself, in sh- growing yourself literally, ensures that you and your loved ones will always know the origin of your food, how it has been raised, and that its cells were acquired ethically and consensually. The project, which uh, appears at uh, a museum that nobody can go to because of the lockdowns, the London-based design museum, uh, the project made as a critique of the lab-grown meat industry, which the designers told, uh, say, is not actually as animal-friendly as one might expect, land-grown meat. Lab-grown meat, I should say, relies on fetal bovine serum for animal cell cultures, though some companies have claimed to have found alternatives and um, uh, and so forth. So the lab-grown meat that has not yet been approved for human consumption, uh, though, is in the offing. This is sort of a commentary on that development. Supply everything you need to create cultivated food at home from your own cells. Me, it's what's for dinner. Uh, but it would help to reduce incidents like this. I don't know if you saw this gruesome story. A teacher who allegedly killed and ate a man he met on a dating app has been arrested after bones with bite marks were discovered near his home in Germany. This comes to us from where else? The British tabloids. So this, these are the sort of things that could be potentially avoided, pathologies that developed if you were able to just uh, sit back and, and truly be self-sufficient by generating dinner through your cells. Yes, ghastly. Yes, silly commentary. I don't know. Just something for somewhat comic relief in these times of election challenges and COVID lockdowns. What can I tell you? Thanks for joining us on another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Please do so again uh, today, or excuse me, Tuesday and Wednesday before we uh, usher into the Thanksgiving holiday where I hope you'll have a good time and uh, you'll have uh, meat from the traditional sources and not from yourself to enjoy with family and friends. We'll uh, catch you tomorrow. This is the Dan Proft Show.